Good morning, Cornerstone. My name is Rachel, and I'll be reading the teaching text for today. So it's Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received, received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus, we thank you for the message that is coming and for the Sunday that we get to gather. Um, although we are distant, we are still together in spirit, God. And thank you that you would speak um, through John and what he's going to say today. And we thank you that today is just going to be a beautiful Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so thank you all who have filled out the, the reopening survey. Our board is going to meet this week and have conversations about what that looks like. But uh, a bunch of you filled out the survey, and I was reading through the results this week. If I'm really honest, I was truly agitated about the coronavirus. Is anybody else there? Yes. I was truly agitated. I was, uh, like, tired of not being around people, and I'm an introvert, so that's saying a lot. I was tired of not being able to go out and get lunch with people. I'm tired of, of the stress. Uh, the New York Times had a headline, I think it was yesterday, saying nearly 100,000 people in our country have died as a result of this. And it just hacks me off. And I'm and candidly just kind of worn out, worn out of uh, wearing masks. I'm worn out of the, awkward, the social awkwardness in our culture right now about those who do and those who do not wear masks. Uh, the tension that people are existed that uh, people are experiencing in families or friend groups or maybe even in your apprentice group, some want to start meeting again in person and some are not ready for that. Uh, I'm just I'm irritated about the whole thing. And when there's such chronic anxiety or intense anxiety like this, it can be super easy to lose our playfulness and lose our joy. And it just so happened that this week I came across this uh, liturgy. Uh, that came out of friends at Church of the City, New York. And this is great. It's a, it's a liturgy for those who have not belly laughed recently. A liturgy for those who have not belly laughed recently. This is not on the theme of the sermon, but it is on the theme of like living an abundant Christian life. And so we're going to share this liturgy together. If you are at the lake, shame on you for having more fun than us. But if you're at the lake or at your house, sitting in your pajamas, wherever you are, and whenever you're listening to this, I just invite you to pray this with me, this liturgy for those who have not belly laughed recently. Okay. Oh Christ, you've called us not servants, but friends. And is there any true friendship in which laughter is not the glue that binds? Much has been made of your reputation as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But perhaps you're a God who rises from the grave and eats breakfast on the shore with friends, your love scarred aside, splitting with divine laughter, sharing your joy. We confess that we have not obeyed the command to be joyful always and have forgotten that you exhort us to become like little children, careless in the care of you. But like Sarah, we only laugh in our barrenness in the cavern of disbelief. We acknowledge the ever-widening gulf inside us, the stew of sin and sorrow and loneliness, the pulse of Eden growing faint in our veins. In the face of all that threatens, we ask for the impossible, the loudest, 
fullest belly-deep laugh, a gift from our scandalously playful Father. Lord, we ask that you help us to, as the poet suggests, be joyful though we have considered all the facts. Envelop us in divine hilarity. Take our cynicism and trade it for delight. Teach us the language of levity. For grief is but an interlude, a shadow, and joy is the truest substance for those who know you. May we laugh deeply with those we love. Whoops. And alone with you in the secret place. For in this we rejoice with the tongues of the redeemed and we practice resurrection. There's no shame in laughing with our sorrow. For to laugh is to trust in you. To believe that the rug we roll upon will not be pulled out. To understand that the author has given us a peak of eternity and we know how the story ends. Amen. May you laugh at everyone in here is like crying over this prayer for laughter. Uh, may you laugh today and experience God's joy. In the middle of this, however long this whole deal goes on, we want to maintain and fight for our joy and for our playfulness. So remember to giggle. Remember to de-escalate through laughter. Remember to reach out, watch some buddy comedies, listen to some stand-up, invite God to bring you back to a place of joy. Okay. So last week we looked at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, just the first verse. And in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus cautions us against doing religious stuff with the motivation of being seen. He doesn't say, like, do absolutely everything in secret and no one may ever know about it. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Because if you've done that, you have already received your reward. You're not going to get a reward from your heavenly Father. Uh, Christians are those who aspire to do the right things in the right way for uh, the right reasons. And if we do the right things with the wrong motives, we shouldn't expect any kind of divine pat on the back. As Christians, and, and for our community in particular, who aspire to live in the way of the Sermon on the Mount, we want to do the right things in the right ways uh, for the right reasons. And last week we talked about, we discussed how do you begin moving in that direction where you're operating from a pure heart. You're doing what Kierkegaard said, you're, you're willing one thing, uh, acting out of one chief desire. Uh, last week we asked three questions, and I hope that some of you are able to uh, wrestle with that. We've been putting some discussion questions in the weekly email that maybe you've seen. But the first question we asked was uh, to prompt us to reflect on what currently motivates us. Uh, how, do, how do we get at what currently motivates us? You ask yourself, what do I most hope happens as a result of my action? And so Jesus uses the example of prayer or fasting or giving. Am I doing these things with an intended outcome that other will, people will think that I'm spiritual? We get at our motivation by asking, what do we hope happens as a result of our action? Or we can ask it negatively, what response, if it doesn't happen, is going to disappoint me? Now, this helps us get at our motivations. Uh, the second way we begin to work toward doing the right things in the right way for the right reasons is just to simply ask God to give us a pure heart. Psalm 86, give me an undivided heart. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart or a pure heart. That was also the seventh beatitude. And then the third thing that we talked about really sets up the theme uh, for, the coming, for this sermon and also for the coming weeks, and it's to cultivate a rich 
secret life. Cultivate a rich secret life. We ended the sermon last week with these two contrasting images uh, that give us a metaphor for the kind of life that we can choose. Uh, the first metaphor, uh, we, the first image was that of an iceberg. And, you know, people use that iceberg imagery uh, a lot because you can see a little bit over the surface, but there's this huge subterranean expanse. And, and like our inner and outer lives, we want people to see a little bit of the good that is going on in our lives, but we want there to be this vast expanse of inner fortitude and character and integrity that goes unseen so that our outer life can be supported by a robust inner life. On the other hand, there's another image, and that's of a sinkhole, a sinkhole. And, and with a sinkhole, you have such a weak or non-existent inner life that it literally like crumbles. It can't bear the weight of your outer life. So you can see in the image right here, like the road looked pretty good before, but there's nothing underneath holding it up. And so it collapsed under its weight. A sinkhole kind of life or a life in which you have a weak inner life, regardless of what your outer life look, looks like, ultimately crumbles. It implodes. It falls to pieces. And you can remember in your life where this happened for you. You remember when like the scandal broke or you remember when it happened for your parents or for a leader that you respected and it turns out that they didn't have an inner life to match the demands of their outer life. And our goal in striving with this like Colossians 1.28 desire for this year in particular, uh, Paul said in Colossians 1.28, he is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Our ambition is for the people of our little church is that we could present to God all of us fully mature in Christ. And this, this vision of maturity means that we have an integrated life. And your life is integrated or your life has integrity when your inner life and your outer life match. You're the same person on the inside as you are on the outside, the same person on the outside as you are on the inside. Our lives are integrated when that's true. Conversely, our lives dis integrate. They disintegrate. They have no integrity when our inner and our outer lives don't match. And I've been really candid about the fact like my greatest fear in ministry, my, my single greatest fear in ministry is that I would put on a good show for you, like for, for all of you in the church. And you would think, oh, John is so great. And then I go home and, and my wife and my children know that I'm just full of baloney. That's my greatest fear in ministry. In fact, there was a moment early in marriage, sorry to Emily in advance uh, for sharing this, but there was a moment early in marriage when Emily and I were missionaries in Honduras. And I was talking to my friend Justin on the phone, and I was giving him some spiritual advice. And I hung up, and Emily said in a much more diplomatic and nice way than what I'm about to repeat to you, she said, it's hard to take you seriously when you give other people spiritual advice because I know that you don't pray or read your Bible. It's like, oh, <laughs> And I think that the Lord gave me those words as a gift. Uh, that is the gift of Emily Odom. Thank you. I think the Lord gave me those words and that caution as a gift because I don't want my life to disintegrate. I don't want your life to disintegrate either. We want to be people who have an inner life that can bear the weight of our outer life. So in the passage we just read, and hopefully you still have your Bible open, Jesus is giving his first of several examples 
of areas in the life of the believer where we're invited to, uh, to train ourselves to operate with the right motivation by cultivating a rich secret life. It's like we're deliberately fasting from the approval of others in order to build a tolerance or a capacity for doing the right thing when no one pats you on the back for it. And so the general theme is cultivating a rich secret life so you can have an integrated life. And today Jesus brings up the topic of giving. Uh, Verse 2 just says, so when you give to the needy, we'll pause there, when you give to the needy, two comments about this. First, Jesus assumes, he takes it as a given, that his followers are going to be givers. In the passage here, he doesn't mandate anything like a percentage of giving. He doesn't say, here's the dollar amount where you know you're good with God. He just says, he presupposes when you give, his followers are going to be givers. I could ask as a simple like discipleship checkup question, do you give? And I think we could broaden this to be more holistic in the way that we think about giving, but I think it certainly should include our relationship with money. As a, just a routine discipleship question, I could ask you, do you give? As money comes into your hands, and tons of us have different situations. We have a bunch of retired people in our church. We have students in our church. We have people just getting started, people who have tons of debt. As money comes into your hands, do you have some kind of systematic and habitual way of assuring that some of the money strategically goes out of your hands for the benefit of others? Do you have a a method, an approach, a philosophy that you've landed on before God where some of what comes into you goes out for the sake of others? Do you give? The second comment I would make about this short little phrase, so when you give, is uh, it says Jesus assumes that his followers are giving to the needy. So when you give to the needy. Uh, Several scholars have argued that the word used here could basically be used, you know, like apples and apples with like all nonprofit charitable giving now. Uh, However, um, it seems to be the case that when Jesus said when you give to the needy, he was not thinking about charitable giving in general, though those those principles certainly apply. He was most specifically talking about the practice of almsgiving, which meant the money in your pocket goes to the poor person on the street. It's, it, was a, it was always assumed, and this is actually true in numerous global religions, that uh, giving directly to alleviate the needs and the suffering of the poor is an integral part of a pious life or a holy life, directly at- alleviating material needs for those who suffer want. I think one of the reasons Jesus could say elsewhere that the gospel is meant to be good news for the poor is certainly the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I think the other reason Jesus could say that uh, the the gospel is good news for the poor is it means the gospel means salvation for the rich. And because folks who have means come into the kingdom, that means there's going to be benefit for those who suffer want, those who find themselves in destitute positions. I think of Zacchaeus, who the gospel comes to him, he trusts in Jesus, and he bears fruit in keeping with repentance, demonstrated by rectifying financial injustices in his life. It's good news for the poor because the poor own the kingdom of heaven. It's also good news for the poor because the rich become generous and open-handed in their relationship with money. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, 
He assumes that his followers will give, and he assumes that his followers will give to the needy. But in what way do they do that? How do they give? He's going to do this several times in Matthew chapter 6 where he's going, to, he's going to give a general teaching. He's going to give a negative statement about how not to do it and then follow it up with a positive example. And similarly, uh, in the text that we read this morning, he, he starts off with how not to give. I'll read verse 2 in its entirety. It said, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. He echoes a bit of what we read in verse 1, to be seen by others, or, and then here, to be honored by others. I think the trumpet can be a really lovely instrument. I like Duke Ellington. I like Dizzy Gillespie. But the trumpet is not a subtle instrument by any means. In fact, I saw a video on YouTube this week where uh, some coworkers were mounting an air horn into the springs of their, one of their coworkers' office seats so that when he sat down, it goes... And it was really, really funny. The trumpet is a really funny instrument at times because it is the opposite of subtle. And uh, Jesus is speaking hyperbolically here. He's using exaggeration. I I very much doubt it that there were people in the first century in Israel who were actually... Like, that was a pretty good air trumpet, by the way. Uh, I, I doubt that there were people who were legitimately announcing their giving with trumpets. But he's saying people who really want you to see, oh, I am such a generous person. Think so highly of me. Uh, Jesus, I mean, I assume he's speaking hyperbolically here, but it's people who want to be noticed. They're cutting checks and waving it around. They're getting the novelty-sized checks to show up on the doorstep so you know like it's signed by them in big, bold letters. He says people who give in this way, and he he refers to them with a particular term. And it's hypocrites. It's hypocrites. Something I did not know until my studies this week is, is the term hypocrites was, was pretty generally used in classical Greek thought uh, to refer to actors, like actors in a theater. But Jesus was the first person to repurpose this term for a moral context. And when Jesus uses the word uh, uh, hypocrite, he's talking about someone who operates deceptively. When people like, like complain about Christianity today, they'll say that we're all a bunch of hypocrites. And by that they mean we talk a good game, but we live really poorly. And that's not quite how Jesus is using that term here. When Jesus says the word hypocrite, it's not a person who talks a good game and lives poorly. It's a person who does the right thing outwardly, but they do it with the wrong motivation uh, inwardly, the wrong inward motivation. Describing people who, like, you know, actors on the stage, perform, they, like they follow the script, do the thing they're supposed to do outwardly, but they do it with a corrupt or a, a, a selfish or an ulterior motivation. And Jesus says for these people, these actors, these hypocrites, those who behave deceptively, the ones who have behaved with the motivation of being seen and honored by others, rest assured they have received their reward in full. When the actor in the theater gets the applause after a good performance, like that's all that they're going to get out of it. And similarly, for the person who performs a religious action with a motivation of being seen and a corrupt uh, inward motivation, the only praise and pat on their back they're going to get is from other people. It's not going to be from the Heavenly Father. Do you remember when Tom's shoes came out? Some of you are wearing Tom's right now. Um, They were 
all the rage for a really long time. And then they started doing glasses. And one of the cool things about Tom's, and I really think highly of that company, is they paved the way in doing a kind of like business as mission or having some kind of like charitable component built in. And it really built their brand where you felt like you were doing something good because if you bought a pair of Tom's shoes, they automatically gave a pair of Tom's shoes to a person in need, which I think is a really, really cool uh, business model. And it had such an impact on the capitalist conscience in, in our world that it's kind of become bad business not to have some kind of public charitable outlet uh, for your company. In fact, there's a video of Jimmy Fallon going around in the last couple of weeks where he was surprising uh, first-line, like, front-line medical workers with $25,000 checks. And whenever, like, Jimmy was on the screen, it said, sponsored by Samsung. And it was really clear who was footing the checks for this. Now, is that a good thing? Obviously. And especially if you're the person who's getting a $25,000 check. That's a really cool thing to do. And I would encourage that. I think businesses should do uh, stuff like that. There's more than just uh, the bottom line and, and stakeholders to be mindful of. But if you could apply the questions that we asked last week to this company who footed the bill and their name was on the marquee when the good was being done, what was their motivation for this happening? You could ask like a bunch of Samsung executives, what do you hope will happen as a result of this action? Or you could ask negatively, what result, if it doesn't happen, will disappoint you? Now, I think it's certainly fair to say that their hope would be that there's like an increased goodwill toward their company, that their public generosity would result in positive brand awareness. So the next time that you need a television or some kind of device, you would Google whatever you need, you would see the name of the company, and you would think, oh, I remember them from that television show where they did the nice thing for those people. I'm going to buy this one and not their rival. And I think in many cases, public generosity is advertising, not charity. I think it's a good thing to do, but just remember, like, what's the motivation? Uh, what are they hoping for? And often it's, it's positive brand awareness. It's advertising, not charity. It might be good for business. And all of you who are business owners, I think you should do good stuff with the money that comes into your company. It's, it's good for business to do this, but it's often, I think universally, a dead end for discipleship in the life of the individual believer. You know, it's so interesting. This has occurred to me in studying the Sermon on the Mount, that most of the time when we hear the word secret, like Jesus uses the phrase in secret numerous times in this chapter. I hope you'll read the whole chapter. Most of the time we think of secrets as being a bad thing. And what we would really hope to be true in life is that nobody finds out our secrets, but everybody knows the good stuff about us. But it seems to be the case that in the Christian life and in the Sermon on the Mount way of living that this logic is turned up on its head. In fact, the authors of the New Testament, I think, would, would advise us to practice the exact opposite of our impulse. James said, we actually deliberately bring our bad stuff, our sin, to the light and confess it. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is advising us to conceal it, to fast from the approval of others. We confess our sin, our shortcoming, our failure. But in as much as we can, we, we try to do the good stuff in secret, not with a motivation of being seen by other people. And all of this is about guarding the purity of our motivations. 
and I, you know it's true that there are people who, like, they don't broadcast how awesome they are, and the fact that they don't broadcast it that you just happen to find out makes you like them all the more. And I think that that's gospel logic. We confess, we're candid about our failures, our shortcomings, our lack of maturity and perfection, our, our lack of growth. Uh, but we also, like, keep secret the, the places where we're striving to grow or just keep secret our, our prayer life, our generosity, so that we are not wholly motivated uh, with this desire to be seen by other people. So Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who do good stuff, but they do it for the wrong reasons. Uh, I heard of a, a church member, not at our church, at another church, who in a moment of frustration said, look, I'm a tithing member of this church. I should be allowed to use the building when I want to. Uh, it's so deceptive talking about money at times, or it can be a razor's edge within the church, uh, wanting to talk about money in the right ways for the right reasons. Even when I share with you, hey, here are ways that our church is using the resources that you give for like local renewal and global renewal. I want to make sure that I'm sharing that with you from posture of true celebration and as a point of information and not, as some ministries advise pastors to do, as a way of like making sure you still feel motivated to give. Oh, oh, that is uncomfortable to talk about. We want to do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. Giving, not so we have access to leaders or we have access to a building. Reporting what we're doing as a community as points of information, but not as points of manipulation. It's hard to have a pure heart, and we ask that God would transform us. Jesus says, don't cloak an ulterior motive in the garments of religious action. Instead, and then this goes on to verse 3. He says, when you give to the needy, as he presupposes you'll do, don't let the, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. What on earth does this mean? How are, to, how are we to make sense of this instruction? I would ask you, uh, what is an activity in your life that you've done, especially a tactile one, something you could do with your hands. What's an activity in your life that you have done so often You've gone through the muscle memory and, and habitual action so often that you can do it like unconsciously. You don't even have to think about it. Some of you will remember like you, you, you had something on your mind as you were driving from point A to point B and you're like, I don't even remember how I got here. I didn't even have to think about it. This is unconscious behavior. Maybe for you it's, it's knitting or playing an instrument. I remember uh, when I, I took piano lessons for about five years when I was a kid, and I practiced my major scales and my arpeggios so many times, I think I can still play all of my major scales. It, it's, it can become unconscious action, or learning to play guitar, or driving a stick shift, or even as basic like we see in, in children as starting with sitting up and crawling and walking and running. When you started that activity, you were incredibly conscious of all of your motions and all of your movements. You started like learning guitar and you hadn't yet developed like calluses on your fingertips. You felt like the, the string was cutting into your finger and you could see your skin breaking. You felt how unnatural those poses were. You were carefully studying what your left hand and your right hand were doing but persistent practice enabled you to actually think about it less as you got better at it. You got to a place, especially if you persist with habitual action, of not having to think about what your left hand and your right hand are doing. 
when Jesus talks about the kind of giving, habitual giving that's meant to be a part intrinsic to the life of the believer, uh, this is the, the kind of thing he's getting at. A kind, he's advocating for a kind of self-forgetfulness where we have so trained ourselves in doing good, in this case, giving habitually and giving secretly, that we don't even think to ourselves about how virtuous or right it is. Like, we're not even, like, super impressed with our, our like, our habit toward generosity because it's like, it's just, I mean, it's what we do. There's not a whole lot to it. We don't think of ourselves in the process, and our goodness becomes even hidden to ourselves become, because it is, it is retrained into making, being our second nature. We've adapted virtue through continued use, through practice. Our goodness is hidden from us. Our left hand doesn't know what our right hand is doing because we've purified our motivation. Well, how do you get to a place where that can be true in your relationship with with money or being a generous or a giving person? How do you get, a, get to a place where you unselfconsciously do good? Well, first, I would say you start by self-consciously doing good. Like when you're learning to play an instrument, you're very aware of what you're doing and how unnatural it feels. I remember when Emily and I went on a mission trip the first time, like I couldn't imagine forking over the money to go on this trip. It was very self-conscious to do that act. Or, or maybe for you, when you began like tithing for the first time or systematically giving, you were very self-conscious of that act. I think that's an okay place to start because you've started, you've gotten in motion. Now, the first thing to begin unselfconsciously doing right is to start by self-consciously doing it, whether it's fasting or giving or prayer. You just start. The second thing I would advise you to do as you're learning to do this in a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing is to encode your action with divine intention. And here's what I mean by this. You're you're cutting a check or you see the person on the street corner and you're getting some bucks out of your pocket. By, by encode your action with divine intent, what I mean is, Lord, as I'm pressing submit on this payment, or as I'm looking this person in the eyes, I'm doing it to you. Nobody else knows. I'm doing this to you. You're like investing in the action an intention to honor God and to, to bless God. Encode your action with divine intention and trust that your heavenly Father sees you and He gets it, even if nobody else sees you. So start the action, even if it's self-consciously. Secondly, encode that action with divine intention, doing it unto the Lord. And then third, keep doing that good habitually and secretly for many, many years. This is not a quick fix sermon or practice. You begin doing good. You begin encoding that good with divine intention. And then you practice that good habitually and secretly for a really, really, really long time. And the fourth thing I would say is, in time, it just becomes what you do. You've, like, changed your internal hardwiring where your left hand no longer thinks about what your right hand is doing because it has become your second nature. Through habitual use, repeated use, you developed the muscle memory that the goodness of your action is hidden even from you because you've done it unto the Lord. And ultimately, I think we would all say doing it in response to the generosity of God toward us. In the process of thinking about all this for the last couple of months, I've been reflecting on 
my own motivation for doing something as basic as like texting someone, hey, I'm praying for you today. I'm thinking of you today. Or, you know, do you remember when we used to have in-person conversations with people where you would say things to them like, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you, or, or like, you can be sure I'll be in prayer about that. I was thinking about, well, why would I text a person that? I'm, I'm praying for you. And as I apply the questions that we discussed last week to my own motivation, thinking about, you know, what do I hope will happen as a result of my action, or what result, if it doesn't happen, will disappoint me, I realize that at times, what I'm really hoping will happen when I reach out to that person is that I'm like doubly ensuring that they will still like me as a person. Oof. Isn't it awkward? Isn't it uncomfortable to be candid with yourself about why at times you do stuff? And recognize that in all candor, at times I would do that to ensure that they know that they like me and I will feel relationally safe with them. It's like the Enneagram 9 and me just like working to preserve harmony in all of my relationships. And this is, is a fine line, a razor's edge, trying to discern our motivations. This is where it's such good news that as Hebrews 4.13 says, God sees everything within us. Uh, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give in account, God sees this complicated mess of, of motivations within us. Because it is a good thing to let your friends know that you care about them. I got a letter from somebody this week, and I just like, embraced it as divine encouragement. Like God prompted them to let me know that they were thinking of me, and that meant a ton to me. But you know it's a problem uh, when, when you're telling people you're praying for them more than you're actually praying for them. Or, or, like, you know it's a problem when you begin to see, like, this intention toward generosity, but a failure to actually do the act, to be generous. Or even as much as, like, like you're telling them that when you're feeling relationally insecure and you're forgetting to follow up and actually pray. If you're in doubt about your motivations, just pray for the person and never tell a soul. As you're training yourself to do it unselfconsciously so that it'll just flow out of you, if you have questions about your motivation, do the good action, but do the good action secretly. I think a byproduct, as I'm, as I'm wrapping up, I think a byproduct of a, a person who has cultivated a rich, secret life is deep joy and authentic God, love for God and other people. In fact, as I look at some of the people who have been mentors in my life, one of the things that just characterizes them is an easy laugh. That's not me right now. Uh, I'm, I'm like, I, I am more like jovial, I think, in front of a crowd, but I think inwardly I'm a really serious person. And uh, the, something that is a hallmark of those who've walked with Jesus for a long time, who've trusted in Him, who've learned to secretly and habitually do the good is deep joy and genuine love for God and other people. People who've learned to do good for others with like little chance that you're ever going to know about it. People who've learned to encode their action with true altruism. And, and doing that gives us the gift of loving from a place of purity, not loving merely in order to be loved in return, simply wishing well for the other. And I think living in that secret, habitual posture of generosity and genuine love toward other people just brings in these, this flood, this, this deep well of inner joy. And I think cultivating a rich, secret 
life like this brings us in harmony with the God who, as Dallas Willard said, is the most joyous being in all the universe. And I think it's because God is millennia deep on the practice of giving good gifts secretly. God is quietly smiling because he knows something we don't know. The thing that we just took as happy happenstance, the thing that just worked out well, we have a God peering behind the corner going, wasn't that so great how it turned out for them? I wonder how it happened. We have a God who is wide awake with the purity of love and alive with the vibrancy of true joy. And that's the gift that is for us on the other side of the discomfort of obedience, of learning to be people who pray in secret and pray habitually, people who give in secret and give habitually, cultivating this rich inner life that can support a robust outer life. On the, on the other side of that ongoing training is a well of deep joy and a purified altruistic posture toward other people so that we can truly love them. That's what we want to be. That's who we want to be. People who have deep wells of joy, a robust inner life. So when you give, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the streets and in the synagogues. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give, do not let your, life, your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we would just say that um, we want our ambition to be people who are doing the right things in the right ways for the right reasons. We may not genuinely want it right now, but we want to want it. I pray, Lord Jesus, for the people who are a part of Cornerstone Church. We're a part of our little community. Jesus, that you would purify our hearts and our emotions. That as we take even little steps to fast from the approval of others and to feast on your approval, that we would find ourselves nourished with this joy. That we'd find as we prayed about this like deep belly laughter just bubbling up from a secret that no one but you is in on. Help us to be people who give. May as a result of our generosity, the needy honor you, people's needs be alleviated. I pray that you would give us specific prompting this week, opportunities to give for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of our ego. And as we do this, Lord Jesus, we, we just uh, entrust ourselves completely to you. I want to pray, Lord, a, a blessing on friends who are really sad or really lonely those who may be struggling with mental health challenges, who may find anxiety and depression kind of going up, who are feeling out of sorts, uh, that you would prove yourself to be the most joyous thing in all creation, the most joyous being in all of creation, and you would share with them a measure of your delight and your joy. Oh, Jesus, we love you and we honor you. Amen.